I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I dislike washing myself, and dogs, and noise. I like my sister Constance, and Richard Plantagenet, and Amanita Phylloides, the death cup mushroom. Everyone else in my family is dead. More important to her was the idea of bringing these myths into the present day. The sense that however evolved we may think we are, we're not so far removed from these ancient, you know, so-called primitive peoples. It was like the inside of a museum. There was a giant sword hanging on the wall over there, over the windows in the dining room. The case was full of macabre curios, like little ivory skulls. My name is Mary Catherine Blackwood. I am 18 years old, and I live with my sister Constance. I have often thought that with any luck at all, I could have been born a werewolf, because the two middle fingers on both my hands are the same length, but I had to be content with what I had. Those are the opening lines of We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson, the author who was once described by Time magazine as a kind of Virginia werewolf among the seance fiction writers. Jackson's last completed novel is a whodunit and a horror story, and a bewitching psychological portrait of two young women living in eerie isolation. When Dorothy Parker read it, she said that it brings back all my faith in terror and death. I can say no higher of it. Published in 1962, We Have Always Lived in the Castle is the shortest of Jackson's novels, as economical, evocative and disturbing as The Lottery the notorious short story that first made Jackson a household name in 1948. The poet Howard Nemerov said of Shirley Jackson that she wrote fables in sentences that read about as crisp and clean as those of Jane Austen. By her power of writing such sentences, she achieved her wonderful strangeness, which has to do with the power of magic, both black and white. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and today I'm going to take my basket, follow the path through the woods past the no trespassing sign, unlock a padlocked gate and enter the suspenseful world of Shirley Jackson, 
in the village of North Bennington in southern Vermont, where she lived for 20 years. Now, We Have Always Lived in the Castle opens on a fine April morning with Mary Catherine Blackwood standing on the steps of her local library, wishing she could walk home across the sky instead of through the village. And I'm standing on the steps of the little library in North Bennington that stands on the central square, looking out over this beautiful southern Vermont village. I'm looking out, I can see a grocery store. Opposite, I can see a, a cafe called Pangea, which used to be called the Rain Barrel, and that's where Shirley Jackson and her family used to eat often. And we're standing here on a, on a late autumn day, but The colours of the trees are absolutely stunning. I can see reds, greens, yellows, browns. It's it's peak leaf-peeping season here in southern Vermont. And it's a bit breezy as well. And as in Jackson's Day, the main road runs through the middle of this village. So it's a mixture of locals walking to the shop and cars from further away passing through. And I'm standing here in North Bennington with our guest for today's episode. And it is a delight to introduce Ruth Franklin to the podcast. Ruth, welcome. Thank you very much, Henry. Ruth Franklin is a book critic and former senior editor at The New Republic. She has written for many publications, including The New Yorker, Harper's, The New York Times Book Review, and The New York Review of Books. Her highly acclaimed biography, Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life, won an Edgar Award, a Bram Stoker Award, and a National Book Critics Circle Award in 2016, the centenary of Shirley Jackson's birth. Elaine Shawalter in the Washington Post called it a sympathetic and masterful biography that both uncovers Jackson's secret and haunting life and repositions her as a major artist. Ruth, it's a wonderful book, and it, it makes you the perfect person to be discussing Jackson here today. Thank you so much. As a first question, can I ask, how did you first come across Shirley Jackson? And, and having written the book, what, what was she like as a person, do you think? Um, well, I first came across Shirley Jackson in the way that I think so many people do, reading the lottery in uh, middle school or high school. But I think people often have the sense, if they've read the lottery or we've always lived in the castle, which you just described, these stories um, of suspense, uh, very dark, gothic overtones, they have a sense that Jackson was um, sort of a witchy type. Right. And uh, we can get into that. But I think, you know, she did have that element of her personality, but she also was a very kind of ordinary, in some ways, uh, Vermont housewife who strolled around the village where we're standing right now, buying groceries and uh, visiting the post office and the library and having a very ordinary life with her husband and four children. She had these almost conflicting sides to her personality, didn't she? And we'll be discussing that over the course of today. Now, we're starting with the character of Mary Catherine, or Mary Cat, as she's known in the novel. Who is she? Can you introduce us to this character? Sure. She is the narrator of We Have Always Lived in the Castle, and she herself is kind of a witchy character. Um, uh, she's described in the novel as 18 years old. She sounds much younger, I think, mm. to many readers. She lives in isolation in a house high above the village with her sister Constance and their uncle. And there's sort of mysterious hints about what's happened to the rest of their family. We don't find out the full story until midway through the novel. But even at the beginning, we the reader has a sense that... Um, 
something unnatural has taken place in this house. And as a result, uh, Mary Cat is sort of ostracized by the villagers. Mm. When she comes down um, to do her shopping in a scene that uh, seems very much like the scene we're looking at right now, um, she's catcalled and called names and the people even throw stones at her. She's made to feel quite unwelcome. Absolutely. You say at one point in your book that she's Jackson's most ambiguous heroine. And certainly as we read that novel, part of the experience of reading it is trying to place what is going on with this narrator who's talking to us. Who is she? What's she done? What's her place in this strange world? Yeah, she's so slippery. And, you know, and Jackson really specialized in the unreliable narrator, we might say. Numeric Cat is, is a quintessential example of that. One thing Jackson loved to do in her work was uh, to really amp up the ambiguity level. The idea that not everything was going to be explained, you know, certainly not at the beginning and probably not by the end either, is key to her work. Um, I think not just because she wants the reader to kind of exist in that state of wonderment, but also because uh, she didn't feel that it was up to her necessarily to provide all the answers. Mm -hmm. And certainly in Mary Cat's case, there's, there's a kind of snobbery, isn't there? A kind of class distinction, which she seems to foster, that, that there's this distinction between the wealthy houses on the outskirts of the village and then the villagers who live in the centre. And, and Mary Cat seems quite proud of the fact that the Blackwoods, her family, have always been wealthy, that her father brought the first piano ever seen in the village. Um, and she says on one of the very first pages, the people of the village have always hated us. And so there's a sense that, yes, some dramatic events have happened recently which maybe have reinforced this position, but actually there's always been a divide between the Blackwoods and the villagers. That's right. Well, they have always lived in the castle. Mm. Um, but yeah, you have a sense of the village as a place where those lines are very important. Um, you know, what might not be visible to strangers on the surface actually goes down deep in the culture and history of the place. Mm. Now, when Mary Kant leaves uh, the library, as we are now, she crosses uh, the road to get to the grocery store, which we can see opposite us now. So let's cross like her and go and talk about what happens there. All of the village was of a piece, a time and a style. It was as though the people needed the ugliness of the village and fed on it. The houses and the stores seemed to have been set up in contemptuous haste to provide shelter for the drab and the unpleasant. And the Rochester House and the Blackwood House and even the town hall had been brought here perhaps accidentally from some far lovely country where people lived with grace. So just to recap Shirley's life before she came to live here in North Bennington. She was born in San Francisco in 1916 and then followed her father's job. The family moved to Rochester, New York when she was 16 years old. And I love a bit in your book, Ruth, where you say she, she arrived in the Northeast and, and developed hay fever. She was literally allergic to the Northeast <laughs> of the States. Um, and she attended Rochester University, then Syracuse University. And when she was there, she met Stanley Edgar Hyman, who would become one of the most influential literary critics in mid-century America. They married, lived for a time in New York. And, and why was it that she ended up living here in, in North Bennington then? 
Well, they decided to move to North Bennington because Stanley was offered a job at Bennington College, which is just down the road from where we're standing right now. Uh, at the time, it was a radical, very progressive institution um, designed for educating women beyond you know, their constraints as housewives and encouraging them to develop their imagination, their intellectual lives, and a way, you know, at a time, women went to college to get their MRS degrees, as people said. And Bennington was an institution <laughs> very much founded in opposition to that, um, dedicated to um, improving conditions for women. Ironically, um, it also was a school that became known for um, philandering among its male faculty members. And it would turn out that Stanley Hyman wasn't entirely immune to that tendency himself, and that would create some tensions in the Hyman's marriage. Right. And that, yes, that experience of college life and especially the pupil professor interactions is surely captures that in her novel hangs a man doesn't she it's very much um, inspired by bennington yes College. and there was an idea at the time that um you know the professors were all male and dedicated to their students for sure but also you know to their research and their living the life of the mind and their wives were meant to be faculty wives as it was called then um entertaining their students giving teas for the other faculty wives and again playing the role of housewife and that was a role that uh, Jackson would chafe against, really, for her entire life. Mm-hmm. Well, let's look at where we're standing now. We've crossed the main road, and we're standing in front of the grocery store in North Bennington called Powers Market. It's a really sort of dominant building in this square. It's got four large pillars in front of it and a kind of neoclassical frontage. It's a big white and green building. We've just been inside, and it's today it's full of rather high-end um, really delicious looking food products. I think back then it would have been more of a, of a local market for selling groceries and for family shopping. You say in the book that the village was and still is anchored by Powers Market and it was run by a man called Michael Powers, wasn't it? And he sounds like quite a character. Mm-hmm. Yes, there was uh, Michael Powers and then his son Larry who joined mm-hmm. him in the business and they both were really fixtures of the local landscape. And it sounds like you know Shirley Jackson's very funny about writing that she'd only just stepped foot in the village and when she pops into the grocery store the powers already know all about her how much money she can spend on a house where she's thinking of buying it's it's like they know everything that goes on in the village as soon as it happens yes i think you know she really gives a sense that the market is the hub of the village um, the center of this network of communication and when you think about it it makes sense because uh you know it's the only supermarket for miles around even now but, you know, at a time when people were feeding big families and didn't have the kind of, uh, you know, huge refrigerators that we have these days, they had to pop into this market every day, every other day. They'd buy something and they'd have a chat with one of the powerses. And that was the way gossip got passed around the village. Everybody wound up knowing everybody's business. And that, of course, is why Mericat has to venture into the village to come shopping at the grocery store. And in this moment again very early in the novel we start to get a a a real sense of what Mary Cat is like and a little bit more of an idea of what has happened in the past as she approaches this shop front that we're looking at now she says I always thought about rot when I came toward the row of stores I thought about burning black painful rot that ate away from the inside 
And then she steps inside and everyone freezes in the shop. They all watch her as she gathers a bag of chicken, a leg of lamb, onions, coffee, bread, flour, walnuts, a long list of, of food. And then she finishes by saying, and we need sugar. We're very low on sugar. And someone gives a horrified laugh. And we discover later why that might be. But this village hostility, which we've described already, and which is very obvious in Merikat's visit to the, uh, the grocery store, is reminiscent of that infamous short story that we've mentioned already, which really kick-started Shirley Jackson's career. So let's just move a little bit into the centre of the town square to discuss that. The people of the village began to gather in the square between the post office and the bank around 10 o'clock. In some towns, there were so many people that the lottery took two days and had to be started on June 26th. But in this village, where there were only about 300 people, the whole lottery took less than two hours. So it could begin at 10 o'clock in the morning and still be through in time to allow the villagers to get home for noon dinner. So, Ruth, how do you introduce the lottery to people who haven't read it before? Well, it's a story about a small town and a certain ritual that gets uh, practiced in that town annually. We don't actually learn anything about the purpose of that ritual in the story itself. Um, Jackson kind of walks us through what goes on. Everybody in the town assembles in the square. It's very important that everybody be there, men, women, children. It takes place on a certain day every year, a day in June. And the people in the village all line up to take slips of paper out of a big wooden box. And as the story continues, it becomes clear what happens to the person who draws the piece of paper marked mm. with a black dot. Mm. Oh, it's so brilliantly sinister. And it, and it only fills maybe 15 pages. It's incredibly compact and packs such a punch. And it was published on June the 26th, 1948, in the New Yorker, exactly 75 years ago, at the time we're recording. And as you say in, in your book, it, it became one of the most read and most discussed works of 20th century American fiction. Shirley Jackson has a line where she says, uh, One spring morning I was on my way to the store, pushing my daughter in her stroller. And on my way down the hill I was thinking about my neighbours, the way everyone in a small town does. The night before I had been reading a book about choosing a victim for a sacrifice. And I was wondering who in our town would be a good choice for such a thing. And of course, it, this story relates also to the interests of her husband, Stanley Hyman, right? Because he was working on this long-term project which involved James Fraser and the Golden Bough, this anthropological book about ancient fertility rites. And so this idea of scapegoats and brutal rituals was something that he and Shirley would be discussing, I imagine. Right, yeah. Um, the idea of the scapegoat as, you know, somebody, a member of the community, an animal, I think, more, more often sacrificed for, the, for fertility purposes to bring about a good harvest. In fact, there's a, a line in the lottery that makes reference to that uh, lottery in June, corn be heavy soon. 
And that kind of mythology also was a deep interest of Jackson's as well. She actually introduced Stanley Hyman to the Golden Bow oh, really? when they were in college, you know, setting him on, on his life's path in many ways. But I think more important to her was the idea of bringing these myths into the present day. The sense that um, however evolved we may think we are, we're not so far removed from these ancient, you know, so-called primitive peoples with their rights and imagining what those rituals would look like if we were to practice them now. Absolutely. And it's quite spooky, really, talking about it today, standing where we are, because we're very much in the the village square of North Bennington in an area that could be the kind of gathering place that she describes in that short story. And in fact, there's a key character in the story who, who's a little bit late to the gathering, who comes hurrying from one of these streets, we could imagine. Mrs. Hutchinson, Tessie Hutchinson, runs up to the group with a sweater thrown over her shoulders, and she calls out, you, you wouldn't have me leave my dishes in the sink now, would you, Joe? And as you say, there's... There's something of a self-portrait in that character, isn't there? Slightly disheveled, slightly running late. Someone who has dishes piling up in a sink and and feels self-conscious about it. Yeah, I think we're not wrong to hear a little hint of, of Shirley in that character. Certainly as she presented herself in the autobiographical stories she wrote about her life, again, in this village, a village very much like the one where the lottery takes place, with her four children and her absent-minded professor husband and always kind of struggling to stay afloat and keep ahead of it all. But, you know, at the same time, I think it is important to remember that she didn't label the village in the lottery. She never Mm -hmm. says in the story where it takes place or even when it takes place. Um, There's a reference to tractors, but other than that, it could be hundreds of years ago Mm -hmm. um, or it could be now. And I think it was important to her to make it feel as universal as possible. The idea that this really is kind of every village, this could be anywhere in America, anybody is capable of the barbarity that the people in the village of the lottery wind up practicing. And you wrote a wonderful article for the for the actual 75th anniversary which appeared in the New Yorker and there you talk about how this story has been cited in relation to you know McCarthyism as a reference to the Holocaust but then more recently as a reference to Trump and, and contemporary politics and it feels like that is part of its power that it, it feels constantly relevant to the times. That's right. I mean, ever since I started working on Shirley Jackson, people have asked me what I think the lottery is really about. And, you know, that's a question that they were asking as soon as it came out. You know, as you said, it came out in The New Yorker 75 years ago and immediately caused a sensation. People were, you know, reading it on the bus and the subway and asking other people what they thought. She got hundreds of letters from readers, um, some of whom were angry uh, and threatened to cancel their subscriptions over this piece of trash that had appeared in the magazine. But most of whom were just puzzled and wanted to know what she had meant by this. What was this story really about? And again, I think, you know, that's the wonderful ambiguity of Shirley Jackson that, you know, while she dropped hints, you know, and as you mentioned in that essay where she talks about imagining what if this were to take place in my village, who would it be for the sacrifice? At the same time, she really was determined never to offer an interpretation for the story. She really wanted readers to figure it out for themselves and, you know, really dig deep and try to understand why this affected them in the way that it did. 
So we've just stepped off the square and we're heading up a, a slight hill, up a street called Prospect Street, mm. towards the house where Shirley Jackson was living when she wrote The Lottery. And she later wrote an account called Biography of a Story that the idea came to me while I was pushing my daughter up the hill in her stroller. Perhaps the effort of that last 50 yards up the hill put an edge to the story. At any rate, I had the idea fairly clearly in my mind when I put my daughter in her playpen and the frozen vegetables in the refrigerator. And then she, she goes on to say that she sat down and wrote it pretty much in one go with hardly any revision. But what's nice is that this village seems to have really embraced the legacy of Jackson now. And, and in fact, on the 27th of June, the, the date of this annual ritual in the story, they have a new annual ritual in this village, which they call <laughs> Shirley Jackson Day. And it's a day of celebration. It's a day of, of readings from the work and, and talks about the author. And they've kind of transmuted it into a very positive uh, event. Yes, I think it shows quite a sense of humor that they've chosen to have Shirley Jackson Day on the same day as the lottery. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, let's carry on up this hill to find the house where Shirley Jackson lived with her family. Our house is old and noisy and full. When we moved into it, we had two children and about 5,000 books. I expect that when we finally overflow and move out again, we will have perhaps 20 children and easily half a million books. I think it's this one. Yes, there, but right across from the lawnmower, naturally. Right, well, we're just standing outside 12 Prospect Street, which is a rather remarkable building, really. It's a... It looks almost like a Greek temple with these four classical columns with a plinth above them. Big white clapboard building um, set just a little way back from the road, but very imposing. It's a very kind of impressive site. Again, painted white and green, a bit like Powers Market. This is where Shirley Stanley and their first son, Lawrence, who was three at the time, moved in the spring of 1945. You, you quote a funny uh, anecdote that um, the poet Howard Nemerov, who was another uh, professor at Bennington College, who became a close friend of the Hymans, he said that because of these Doric columns and the sort of Greek temple look, um, he nicknamed this house the Church of Christ Hyman. <laughs> and it does feel a bit like a, a, bit like a temple, doesn't it? It does, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, contemporary readers of Shirley Jackson would recognise this house because a version of it was used as the illustration on the cover of one of her best-selling titles, Life Among the Savages, which she published in 1952. Now, what was that book, and how was it different to the novels that we've been discussing so far? So, in addition to her uh, life as a writer of literary short stories for The New Yorker and other magazines, Jackson also had a very lucrative and popular career as a writer for women's magazines, um, for which she wrote um, short, memoristic essays about her life as the wife and mother of these four um, infamous children who she um, satirizes as the savages. And, um, you know, she shows a much different side of herself in these pieces. While they have, you know, a recognizable touch of 
Jackson, certainly in her style, which is always is understated, uh, but with an eye for kind of the perfect adjective or adverb, just in just the right spot. Um, there also can be just a little touch of the macabre about them, as when she um, sort of gestures at the idea that there might be poltergeists in the house, but you know, who really knows because there are children in it as well. <laughs> But they show a much more lighthearted and humorous aspect of her. And it's the tension between those two roles um, and, you know, the melding of them that was what attracted me to want to write about Jackson in the first place and to kind of understand how one person can inhabit and express these very different modes of thinking about the world. Right. You, you describe it at one point as the enduring question of, of Shirley Jackson's career. And it certainly seems to have confused some contemporary critics, doesn't it, who, who, who kind of didn't understand how she was moving between these two registers. There was one reviewer described her as a writer with two heads, like they were hmm. completely separate. That's and, right, and yeah. But I think part of what's so interesting is that the two heads are always present at the mm. same time. And, you know, in that essay you quoted about her writing The Lottery, um, where she talks about pushing the stroller up the hill back to the house and putting away her groceries, there she is in her housewife mode as she's about to sit down at the typewriter. And, you know, she tells that story about the creation of The Lottery in different ways at different times. But one detail that always stays constant is the short space of time that she writes the story in. And in fact, in one of these accounts, she says that she wrote it before her older son came home from kindergarten for lunch. Wow. And I think it's so striking the, you know, to see that the way that she measures her day, she really did think about fitting in her creative work in those spaces those little in-between spaces when uh, she had some freedom from her children. And as you say, that you know, her horror stories are, are very much grounded in a domestic settings, in kitchens, and in, in kind of homely settings. And her domestic writing, as you say, just is a tiny tap to shift over into quite a dark place. She, she gestures towards it. There's a moment in Life Among the Savages where she says, sometimes in my capacity as mother, I find myself sitting open-mouthed and terrified before my own children. <laughs> and there is something about sort of unpredictability and, and sort of craziness of having children, but, but it feels almost close to her horror stories. Indeed. I mean, which, if we're being honest, what mother hasn't at, well, at some point or other felt that way about their own children. <laughs> yes. But, you know, that's also what was so innovative about her as a horror writer. And I sort of hate to call her that because she only wrote one book that we would truly put in the horror genre, which, of course, is The Haunting of Hill House. Um, and the others, I think, we would call more along the lines of psychological suspense. Yes. Um, but, you know, as a writer who worked in these genres, what she brings to them is her really almost exclusive preoccupation with the lives of women, um, the circumstances of women's lives, the conditions under which they lived um, socially and politically. While she doesn't bring that explicitly into the novels, you feel it everywhere in the background. Mm. And so it's frustrating when we think about Betty Friedan writing the feminine mystique. And she, she names Shirley Jackson specifically and, and describes her as part of a new breed of women writers who are beginning to write about themselves as if they were just housewives, reveling in a comic world of children's pranks and eccentric washing machines. And as you say, it's, it's a kind of 
myopic vision of what Jackson's doing. It's, it's, she's showing how these worlds are actually very close. And, and as, as we say, these two sides of her writing are actually interlinked in lots of fascinating ways. That's right. And she also really demystifies the life of the housewife and the mother in that way. There's no idealization at all. Um, and it's, you know, it's especially striking if you compare it to the language of women's magazines of her time, which were you know, the advertisements, but also the features, very focused on the beautiful housewife and you know, her trim figure, her perfect clothing, um, all the newfangled tools and chemicals to keep her house perfectly clean and running like a smoothly well-oiled machine. And Jackson just really stood in contrast to all that. She writes in these stories about her dust and disorganization in a way that humiliated her mother, who was a very kind of proper um, housewife and always hoped that she would be, you know, from the time that she wanted Shirley as a teenager to be a debutante to much later when she wanted her to be a perfect housewife. She expected Shirley to inhabit this model of femininity that um, Shirley always rejected and always saw herself in opposition to and really reveled in, you know, the pet hair on the couch and being the kind of, of mother, you know, even in those days who would get down on the floor and play with her children and make up imaginative games. Mm. Well, in 1950, the Hymans left this house and moved for three years to Westport in Connecticut. But in September 1953, they returned to North Bennington to the house where Shirley Jackson would live for the rest of her life. So let's pick up with Merricat again as she walks away from the village towards the ramshackle mansion that is such a key location in We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Past the town hall bearing to the left is Blackwood Road, which is the way home. Blackwood Road goes in a great circle around the Blackwood land and along every inch of Blackwood Road 
is a wire fence built by our father. Not far past the town hall is the big black rock which marks the entrance to the path where I unlock the gate and lock it behind me and go through the woods and am home. So we're back in the centre of North Bennington now, and like Merricat, we're now heading out towards one of the houses a little bit outside the centre. And Ruth, we've already mentioned that, that there's another key character in We Have Always Lived in the Castle, Merricat's sister, Constance. How would you describe Constance? Well, uh, Merricat and Constance are sort of like two sides of a coin. Um, Mary Cat's dark, Constance's light. Constance is very kind of even keeled. Mary Cat is wild and uncontrolled. Um, Constance is the older sister, and as we know, she's the one who stays in the house behind the gate and doesn't come down to the village while it's Mary Cat who exposes herself to the village people. Right. Mary Cat almost sort of worships Constance, doesn't she? There's something almost angelic about her with her blonde hair and, and healthy skin. And, and, and as you say, she even plays the harp. So there's this kind of... <laughs> That's um, right. Uh, yes, there is something sort of reverential about uh, Mary Cat's treatment of her and the novel's treatment of her, really. Um, and she's kept locked up sort of like a princess in a castle. Mm. She's kept behind the gate within a walled garden. Uh, where she's uh, never exposed to the eyes of any stranger. And just thinking more about Mary Cat as we walk back, as she as she enters the the grounds of the Blackwood Mansion, she has all kinds of rituals and, and safeguards for keeping the perimeter of this garden safe. And throughout the book, she indulges in all kinds of forms of magical thinking, doesn't she? Mm, yeah, that's um, a good way to put it. What forms do they take? And, and how does that relate to Shirley Jackson's view of witchcraft, do you think? Uh, well, she's got uh, magic words so that she repeats. Um, not magic words like abracadabra, but um, regular words that she assigns a magical meaning to, sort of at random. Um, she's got little talisman that she berries around the property or hides in different places. She's obsessed with keeping things in order in that way, in her own particular order, keeping them bound by her rules. She's got lots of rules, yes. hasn't she? and Constance also has rules for her, we find uh -huh. out, that some of the rules are made by Mary Cat um, as part of her magical thinking. And some of the rules are made by Constance, who is clearly the adult in this relationship. Right. So things like Mary Cat says, I was not allowed to prepare food, nor was I allowed to gather mushrooms. I wasn't allowed to pour tea, to handle knives. Yes. Our, our first clues that um, maybe something's a little bit off about Mary Cat's relationship with the world with violence. And, you know, you asked how this relates to Jackson's own view of witchcraft. I think it was, uh, it was similar in a way in that... It's domestic. It comes from daily life. It doesn't involve um, invoking spirits, but rather um, putting a spin on what's already there in front of us. As you put it in your book, um, Mary Cat's witchiness is enhanced by her faithful black cat, Jonas, um, who follows her everywhere. And she speaks to Jonas as if Jonas can 
understand and, and almost talk back in a way that I think Shirley Jackson would do to her own cats. She would talk to them. That's right. The Jackson house. had a whole series of black cats. Um, apparently, you know, as many as a half dozen or so at a time who well, she called, uh, in some cases, by various names used for the devil. Right. <laughs> so it was definitely, she, was, she had a real fascination with witchcraft, didn't she? And, and she was quite playful with it. On the um, dust jacket of her first novel, The Road Through the Wall, it, it described her as perhaps the only contemporary writer who is a practicing amateur witch <laughs> specializing in small-scale black magic and fortune-telling with a tarot deck. But as you say, in a way, the, the importance of witchcraft to her was as a metaphor for, for female power in the domestic space. I think that's right. I mean, she loved to joke about using witchcraft. For instance, she loved to tell a story about um, hexing the Yankees when they were playing against the Brooklyn Dodgers uh, in the World Series. Uh, she joked about turning up at the Dodger Stadium with all kinds of hexes to throw the series for the Dodgers. Um, she joked about um, breaking the leg of her husband Stanley's publisher, Alfred Knopf, um, when they were embroiled in a contract dispute. And she liked to joke that she had to wait for Knopf to go skiing in Vermont before she could do this because she couldn't work magic across state lines. <laughs> and that's just such a great example, I think, of the ways in which the magical and the domestic are inseparable in her life. Yes. And, you know, she, critics just ate up these stories and loved the stuff about her being an amateur witch. One of the quotes most often um, cited about her is that she wrote, not with a pen, but a broomstick. Mm. And, you know, it's, these are so evocative. But at the same time, they've been used kind of to diminish her as an excuse for taking her less seriously. And I think it's important to remember, as you just said, that... In her work, witchcraft is a metaphor in her work as well as in her life. Yes, you have a line where you say that witchcraft is a last resort for women who feel that they are powerless, the only way in which they can assert control over their surroundings. And that certainly feels true of Mary Cat, doesn't it? She's in quite an extreme situation in this isolated house, and she's asserting control over it through these systems of magical thinking. That's right. She's utterly at the mercy of everyone of her sister, of the village people, and then, as we'll see, of her cousin Charles when he suddenly shows up to take control of their domain. Yes. And I think, you know, many women, many women of Shirley's time, as well as before and after, have the experience of lacking agency over their lives, of, you know, of having a father or a husband who steps in and makes all the major decisions for them. And, you know, for such women, maybe the imagination is the only way out. It was a good house, and nearly clean. There was light from the kitchen window and from the windows of the dining room. It was time for their dinner, and I must be there. I wanted to be inside the house with the door shut behind me. Okay, so we've just come up opposite 66 Main Street in North Bennington. This is the second house where Shirley Jackson lived in this village. She 
describes the moment when she first saw it. She says, I, I drove slowly up Main Street. The house with the gateposts was unmistakable, particularly since the left-hand gatepost leaned at a sharp angle inward toward the driveway. I saw maple trees and a wide lawn and a barn almost as big as the house. I could almost see our children running on the lawn, swinging from the trees, playing in the barn. And she later says, our new house was waiting for us, eager, expectant and empty. And it's, it's definitely a, a larger house than the Prospect Street house. When they first moved in here, it had been divided into four separate apartments. And they took down those partitions and made it into one great house again. Now, Ruth, in your book, you, you write that many say 66 Main Street was Jackson's model for Blackwood Farm in We Have Always Lived in the Castle. In what ways are the houses similar and in what ways are they different? Blackwood Farm is a very elegant house. Uh, we hear a lot about its draperies, its china, its fancy furniture, how everything is kept um, just as it was, uh, you know, for generations of Blackwood women who take great pride yes. in um, keeping everything just so. And my impression of the way this house was at the time that... Um, the Hyman family lived here was that it was a house full of children. It wasn't a house where people kept things just so. And visitors, uh, you know, talk about all the cat fur on the furniture. Um, they also described in great detail the cabinet of curiosities of stuff from both Shirley and Stanley's collections gathered from all over the world. You know, I, I think of the Blackwood house as kind of stuffy and staid and very sort of, you know, closed off, uh, the curtains closed, very shut up away from the world. Um, this house feels very much a part of the town. Yes, the Blackwood farm is kind of secluded, mm -hmm. protected, sort right. of muffled by gardens these around woods it. and gardens yeah. around it. Yeah. Well, I think we're expected inside. So let's go up to Shirley Jackson's front door and, and ring the bell. Thank you very much. Yeah. Gosh, it smells so good in here. It does, it smells so good. Let me get the scones out of the oven. Thank you, that's so kind. Fantastic, gosh, it's so beautiful. Okay, we've just stepped into 66 Main Street and we've been welcomed in by the owners, Stuart and Wendy. Thank you so much for letting us in. We really appreciate it. Um, we've stepped into a beautiful hall with large arched doorways off either side with big doors set in them. Beautiful white plasterwork. And, and Wendy, I can't help but notice in Pride of Place in the hall, there's a wonderful cabinet full of um, plates. What's going on here? Yeah, so normally, uh, normally folks come in on the weekend on Saturday mornings to select scones and pastries and cookies and cakes and all kinds of things from my vintage bakery case. That's what, it's <laughs> a beautiful them. structure. And so you, you started a, a micro bakery in, in the house not that long ago, right? No, 10 months ago. Yeah, okay. I actually started right there on the porch. On the porch, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it was the Saturday after Thanksgiving. We had had a fire that week in our chimney. And um, we had nine trucks in front of the house and firemen running all over the house trying to put the fire out. One of the bedrooms upstairs that has the chimney wall as a part of it um, was reading at 375 
Oh my and goodness. Said, That's where I cook my scones. <laughs> <laughs> and I had been wanting to do a micro bakery for a long time. So I, um, I woke up the next day after the fire and something had changed. I don't know what, but I decided it was now. <laughs> so I opened up the following Saturday, which was Small Business Saturday, and I opened up right here on the porch. Oh my so, goodness. Wow, well, it's great. so impressive. And I have to say, there's really delicious smells throughout the whole oh, house, yeah. which bode extremely well. I hope you like lemon. They're lemon curd, <laughs> lemon curd and currant scones. And How fantastic. Lemon blueberry scones and all kinds of things like and, that. So. And Stuart, so you, you grew up in this house. You, your yeah. father bought it from Stanley Hyman. Yeah, I, we, I was 10 when we moved here uh, from upstate New York. And... Uh, then we actually lived in the house for a sort of an academic year with all of Shirley and Stanley's stuff in it. Moved across the lawn there to the college house for the summer when Stanley was going to move out uh, at that point. But then he died. And what are your memories of the house as a teenager being? Well, especially uh, living here with the Hyman's and Shirley's stuff in it, it was really cool. It was like the inside of a museum. Um, there was a giant sword hanging on the wall over there, over the windows in the dining room. The case there in the in the dining room was full of um, sort of macabre curios, like little ivory skulls and things like that. And Stanley was a big coin collector. And he... Uh, had a bunch of Roman coins set in a table here. Wow. But and the best thing though was they had a complete set of the Hardy Boys. <laughs> as far as I was concerned. So I got to really? read all those. But <laughs> Stanley had very strict rules about all the all the books. He knew exactly where they all were and so we we could read them but we had to put them back. Put exactly. them back precisely. And how have you both found Living in the house where the Hymans live, where Shirley Jackson wrote her novels. Wendy, you said there have been a couple of spooky oh, experiences you've yeah, had? Yeah, I mean, we've had things that have happened that we can explain. We've only had one thing happen that we can't explain. Yeah. Um, and that was, um, we were sitting in the kitchen, just right down that way, um, with a good shot. You know, you can see into this room. And our dog, one of our dogs, Emma, was in this room. She was sort of dancing around, playing. And we were having lunch. This sounds so kooky, I know. But a ball, <laughs> one of her, uh, it's called a conch ball, yeah. came flying across this way, like even with your waist, to her. She caught it in her mouth, was dancing around, went mm -hmm. back over that way. There's nobody there. We don't know where the ball came oh, from. That is really spooky. And I wasn't like a someone who you know believed in ghosts or anything like that mm. prior to moving here but there have been some very unusual things that have happened here mm. you know most of the time you can say oh yeah we can explain that away um that one we couldn't <laughs> so, wow but wow. Um, but it's nice i mean it's it's a neat place to live it's a very peaceful place to live and it's you know if there are spirits that are here they seem to like us and they're very welcoming well it's we're very grateful to you for letting us in today oh, sure yeah We were a large family once, you recall. A large and happy family. We had small disagreements, of course. We were not all of us over-blessed with patience. 
I might almost say, that there were quarrels. Nothing serious, husband and wife, brother and sister, did not always see eye to eye. So Ruth, we've come into the dining room of 66 Main Street, and it's amazing to think of Shirley and her children sitting around a table here in this space. But this is also a key location in We Have Always Lived in the Castle, isn't it? We learn in the very first paragraph of that book that all the rest of Mary Cat's family have died six years before the action of the novel. So what happened on that night six years ago? Well, what happened that night was uh, the family sat down to eat, as usual, at the dinner table. Um, They all ate their meal together, and then at the end of the meal, blackberries were served. Many members of the family, though not all, put sugar on their blackberries. And it turned out that there was arsenic in the sugar bowl. And uh, nearly all the family died, leaving only Mary Cat, Constance, and their uncle Julian. Who only took a very little bit of sugar. Yes, and there's a moment where Uncle Julian is kind of giving a tour of the room and says that uh, John Blackwood, the father of the family, sat at one end of the table, his wife at the other Julian and his wife Dorothy were at the table. Constance was there. Mary Cat's brother Thomas, her younger brother Thomas, was there. Um, and in fact, <laughs> Shirley Jackson's um, children remember her asking them to recreate this scene right around the table so she could picture it. That's right. Apparently she asked different members of the family to sit in different spots um, so that she could really make sure she got the staging right. It's interesting to think about how she used her own physical environment and transformed it in her literature. She drew floor plans for the houses in some of her novels, including Hill House. And yeah, the way that she kind of manipulated the space of real life to help her manifest what was in her mind. Now, as we were saying, the, the novel is a masterpiece of pairing away exposition and, and a lot of the kind of motives behind these actions are unclear. But we do get clues about the rest of Mary Cat's family, don't we? What, what do we intuit about her father and her mother, for instance? Well, we learned that this was a a family really of extreme dysfunction, a lot of coldness, chilliness, you know, not the kind of happy, playful and um, entertaining kind of family, warm family life that the Hymans seem to have experienced. There's a moment um, where Uncle Julian, whose mind is slightly sort of mixed up, thinks that he's talking to his brother John and, and says, you're a selfish man, John, perhaps even a scoundrel. And another moment where he describes Thomas, the 10-year-old boy, saying that he possessed many of his father's more forceful traits of character. And these feel like sort of clues to this extremely domineering father Yeah, figure. and we're left to imagine how that might have manifested itself. And, you know, so in some of the earlier drafts of the novel, as you said, Jackson pared away rather than adding... And um, one thing she paired away was explanation of people's motives. So in one of the earlier drafts, it's much more clear um, that, for instance, Constance was the target of abuse by uh, the father and uh, the older brother, I think, also. But, uh, you know, in the end, Jackson chose to leave that all ambiguous and to take out the explanations for why people behave the way they do. There's just that one line, isn't there, where 
It's not even Constance who says it. She's reported as having said that she told the police those people deserved to die. That's right. And to say that about your own family shows that there must have been something very extreme going on. Right. And we, what, of course, so often, you know, the things we can imagine are worse than the things that could be written on the paper. And Jackson leaves that open for each reader to fill in for themselves. What is the horrible thing that the family might have done to make a child in that family feel that way? Uh-huh. Well, let's, let's move through now into the kitchen, which I can see just through this door here. In the novel, um, the kitchen is described as the heart of the home, and this is Constance's domain. She does all the cooking. She really um, loves food and loves to kind of prepare food tenderly. And Ruth, why was the kitchen such an important space for Shirley Jackson, do you think? Well, Jackson loved food. She loved cooking. I actually have some of her recipes that she kept and that were preserved in her archive that I tried making for my own family with some some with more success <laughs> than others. Um, and, you know, I think in many ways the kitchen was her domain. It was the space that was hers in the house. She did have her own private writing space, as Stanley did. Um, but the, the kitchen was her room. And the children often describe finding her here, um, sitting on a stool at the counter, sometimes with her notepad, dreaming up ideas for stories. She describes that herself as a part of her process, that, you know, that she never turned that part of her brain off. And, you know, you can see it also in her archive, in the notebooks that she kept. Um, There will be a notebook with recipes in it, and then you'll turn the page and find notes for a novel, or you know her her the also the diet logs that she sometimes um, painstakingly kept during the periods when she was trying to lose weight because she struggled with her weight for much of her life. Uh, you know, flip the page and here's a draft of something she was working on. It's literally all in the same place. That's amazing. It's a beautiful light room with lots of shelves around the walls and. It's rather amazing to think of the ghost of Shirley Jackson sitting on a high stool by the surface over there, preparing food while she makes notes. Well, let's move back through to the hall to talk about the the event which kickstarts the events of the novel. I saw him through the dining room window, and for a minute, chilled, I could not breathe. I knew the front door was locked. I thought of that first. Constance, I said softly, not moving. There's one outside. The kitchen door, quickly. I thought she had heard me, because I heard her move in the kitchen, but Uncle Julian had called at that moment, and she went into him, leaving the heart of our house unguarded. So we've just stepped back into the hall of the house, which has this rather marvellous large staircase heading up to the upper floors. Well, this is maybe a good place to talk about the arrival, which completely fractures Mary Cat's world. Who arrives at Blackwood Farm to disturb the household? Well, unusually, they do get a, a guest. Their cousin Charles arrives to kind of assess the state of affairs on the estate. And as we eventually figure out, to try to kind of warm his way in and see what he can take for himself mm-hmm. of the family, the family jewels. And it's interesting that when he first arrives, Constance's first sentence about him is, uh, I knew him at once, he looks like father. Mm. And there definitely seems to be a way in which 
you know, history is starting to repeat itself. Charles is a really is is a bully basically, and there's this sinister moment where he talks to Jonas the cat and says, "Cousin Mary doesn't like me." Charles said again to Jonas. I wonder if Cousin Mary knows how I get even with people who don't like me. Really sinister words. And as Mary Cat says, the day falls apart around her when she sees him here. And so she somehow needs to get this cousin out of the, out of the house. And, and definitely the arrival of Charles brings out this, this kind of second defining characteristic of Mary Cat, which is that she's destructively violent, isn't she? Yes, well, all her efforts, her magical efforts, suddenly become concentrated in this figure of Charles and her rage at him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he, she does seem to see him as one of these snakes in the grass waiting for her to, to act. And she does, you know, this is a sign of her unreliability as a narrator. She does truly believe that she is acting in the best interests of Constance mm-hmm. and being protective. So we've just come through into the other room at the front of the house with bookcases all around the walls. You can really imagine um, this is a beautiful room for reading in and, and big windows between the bookshelves. And Ruth, how does Mary Cat eventually cleanse the house of her cousin Charles? What, what well, method she does, does she it use? in a very traditional way uh, by setting a fire and burning everything down. She brushes his own pipe, doesn't she, that yes. he's left burning into the wastebasket, which has papers that he brought into the house. She's careful to stress. That's right. So she's using his own instruments to bring about his... And this is another moment, actually, where Jackson pared down the scene to much less than she had originally imagined it to be. In an earlier draft, um, there's a whole explanation of Mary Cat's internal monologue as she's doing this, um, that she doesn't really think it's all going to catch on fire. She's not sure. There's just, there's more explanation. In the end, Jackson decided she didn't need it. All we have is the action Mary Cat sweeps the pipe off the desk and into the wastebasket. It's very powerful. And of course, the house does catch fire. And this is where I think the, you know, the lottery and we have always lived in the castle have such an interesting comparisons with each other. Because the village gathers to, to witness this mm. burning. You know, Mary Cat looks out and sees um, everyone in the village was there looking up and watching. I saw faces laughing and faces that looked frightened. Even though the villagers have always hated the Blackwoods, the village fire brigade comes and, and battles to put out the fire, which they eventually do. After it doesn't completely destroy the house. But then what happens next? This is a really creepy moment. It's terrible. Something just terrible happens. I think it's a moment, you know, where you just feel your heart sink in the novel. The fire chief takes off his hat, you know, as if to symbolize that he's no longer acting in his official capacities, but just on his own instincts. And he starts throwing rocks through the windows of the house. And And he's not alone. Yes. He gets at once the first rock is thrown that's all the rest of the townspeople need to join in. It's it, so chilling. It's it's a kind of uh, a mob violence, isn't yes. it? Destroying the house and 
Mary Cat and Constance are, are huddling together and and threatening them as well, yeah. say trying to f- sort of flush them out of the house. Right, um, and Mary Cat says, "Above it all, most horrible was the laughter." I saw one of the Dresden figurines thrown and break against the porch rail, and the other fell unbroken and rolled along the grass. I heard Constance's harp go over with a musical cry, and a sound which I knew was a chair being smashed against the wall. It's so auditory, all of that. They can't see what's going on, but uh, they know what's happening from the sounds. All the wealth and hidden treasure of our house had been found out and torn and soiled. And it does feel like that, similar to that moment of crowd violence in, in the lottery, doesn't yes, it? Yes, yes. And the idea of it being of it being soiled. Mary Cat's been trying all this time to keep things clean, um, to cleanse it, all her, her habits of neatening, as mm. she calls it. And now that boundary has been irrevocably breached. Yeah. And the effect that it has is it sort of shrinks their world even further. So they did have the run of the house and the grounds, but Mary Cat suddenly realizes she's not allowed to visit the paddock anymore. They can't go out into the garden. Their world shrinks essentially to the kitchen, Mm. the kitchen and Uncle Julian's room just off it. And the sad, sad thing is that soon after publishing We Have Always Lived in the Castle, Shirley Jackson's own life shrank down to a much, much smaller scope. So let's head upstairs to one more room in this house to see the room where Shirley Jackson slept and and talk about what happened next. On the moon we have everything. Lettuce and pumpkin pie and Amanite phylloides. We have cat-furred plants and horses dancing with their wings. All the locks are solid and tight and there are no ghosts. Original Hyman bookcases right there. Yeah, Lawrence. Yeah. Lawrence, Lawrence made built those. Lawrence and made this, and he made one that was here. There's another one here, and, and all the ones that were blocking the, the doorways downstairs, um, he made those. Because he was really quite a competent carpenter, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. And is that the, the cat I can see up on the shelf? Is that one of. Um, That's. The big one is one of Shirley's cats. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And then we've just been collecting some um, <laughs> because it used to be a thing when someone would come visit the house. Uh, Stuart's dad would give them a cat. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So this was so, yeah, this Shirley's was, room. This was here. Shirley's room. Um, I can say uh, it's, uh, it's <laughs> being reworked. Yeah. They removed Please. the wallpaper yeah. in here. Um, there was probably about five layers of wallpaper. Oh, and this is very authentic. Um, <laughs> this is the same. You know, it's so funny. I thought I should redo this bathroom, but... On second thought, I thought, no, I shouldn't redo it because this is all vintage, right? Vintage Shirley. So <laughs> why would I change the sink? That's the same sink she used. Gosh, so. that's amazing. These rooms yeah. are wonderful. Yeah, we're hoping to, to make them all for them into air, an Airbnb situation. So that's it's wonderful. just um, taking time. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, so we, we're standing in the room where Shirley Jackson slept windows on two sides were at one of the back corners of the house it's being redecorated at the moment so the floor's been taken up the walls have recently been replastered but still we're looking at the views out of the windows that Shirley Jackson would have known looking out onto maple trees and lawns and the houses around and Ruth how was it that that Shirley came to live a constrained experience in the last years of her life 
Well, it's hard to say exactly what triggered it. Um, she was exposed to a greater degree of publicity than usual after We Have Always Lived in the Castle was published. She had issues with mental illness that troubled her throughout her life, starting from when she was a teenager. And she had a kind of a breakdown after having finished her third novel, The Bird's Nest, um, which is actually a novel about a woman's disintegration. Um, into multiple personalities. And she became a prisoner of her house. Um, she had also physical ailments, including colitis, that made it hard for her to leave the house. I think she also broke her ankle over the winter. Various things combined to make it easier to stay inside than to go out. But one of the things that she talked about was her dread of going to the post office and picking up the mail. And we remember, of course, all of those um, letters that she received in response to the lottery. Although, remember also that the letters weren't necessarily as hostile as she presented them as being, mostly um, inquisitive. But the person who she did often get hostile letters from was her mother, who sent um, for her whole life uh, from California, sent very critical letters, um, criticizing Shirley for her appearance, or for the subjects that she wrote about. She once asked her why she had to have so many demented girls in her novels. And there's this very sad story that when We Have Always Lived in the Castle was published, there was a profile of Shirley in Time magazine. And instead of uh, praising her and congratulating her on all this wonderful publicity, her mother told her how ashamed she felt when she saw the picture of Shirley that ran with that magazine piece. That's awful, isn't it? And, and you, you quote in the book this this letter that Shirley Jackson wrote back to her mother, you know, really kind of laying out the effect that this treatment of her had had over her whole life. And as we're reading it, we're thinking, yes, you know, her mother needs to hear this. And then you reveal that it was never sent. She never sent that letter. That's right. She got it off her chest somehow, but but she didn't send it. Mm. And instead, she internalized all that pain, and it took her the space of several years to get back on her feet. And so she was housebound for more than a year, right? She a year, a year and a half, something like when that. When she tried to leave, she'd begin to shake, her legs would give way, everything would start spinning. And at one point she wrote that in, in, in a diary that she started keeping to try and get herself through this period. Because she also couldn't write during this <laughs> right, period. right. Yeah. Uh, she put in this diary, I think all my books laid end to end would be one long documentation of anxiety. Mm. And it's so sad that this this kind of trajectory she was on led to this agoraphobic confinement to the house. But it's so interesting, isn't it? But at the end of We Have Always Lived in the Castle, this this extreme confinement, they kind of not only retire into the kitchen, they block up all the windows, they kind of build extra walls around the house. It's, they absolutely fortify themselves in this space. But it's a happy ending, isn't it? It's a, it's a kind of idyllic ending in some ways. Yes, Mary Cat and Constance say to each other, we will be very happy. And you're right, they do find kind of a paradise of confinement. Again, they're safe in their own way. They are sheltered from the village people with whom they seem to, at the end of the book, have reached some kind of truce. And the village people are bringing them offerings of food and right. other things that they need. It's almost as if the, the fire and this mob violence has kind of 
put the villagers through some kind of purification so they now right. feel guilty or they proffer these offerings of food and again and yeah again in a very kind of elemental um mythical mm. way that we, we feel those myths reverberating in our own world uh, joyce carol oates has said that it, it's an astonishing wish fulfillment fantasy in which the agoraphobic is not pitied but revered idolized hmm. potentially yeah. <laughs> um, but you know too often that is what people think of when they think of jackson they see her as this this shut-in the crazy woman the agoraphobe who couldn't bear to leave her house and what i think is actually especially tragic about the end of jackson's life is that she was recovering when she died she did she sought therapy she recovered from her agoraphobia and in the last six months of her life, she embarked on a lecture tour of a bunch of colleges and universities, and she started two new novels. Um, one was a fantasy young adult novel, and the other was uh, the book that was published in part posthumously as Come Along With Me, about a woman who gets in her car and drives away to a new life for herself. And so I think you know that does make Shirley's death which I guess occurred right here in this room mm. since she died in bed. Um, it makes her death especially poignant, knowing that, um, that her life was at a turning point, that it was about to, it, to get better. That is extremely poignant, isn't it? And yeah, extraordinary to think of her dying here in August 1965. So let's step outside the house now to finish our conversation about Shirley Jackson today. And thank you, Stuart and Wendy, so much for allowing us into your house. It's been a real privilege to see where Shirley Jackson and her family lived. It's been a pleasure to have you. We're happy to have you here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Gosh, well, we've just stepped outside the house what an extraordinary experience having having been inside. Ruth, there are no actual ghosts in We Have Always Lived in the Castle, but in some ways it feels like it almost borders on being a ghost story. Would you, would you agree? Well, it's haunted by the ghosts of all of those people who came before, right? Of all the family members who live on in people's memory. Uh, you know, it's haunted in the way that all houses are haunted with the remnants of those who once lived there. Yes, right. There's that moment where Mary Cat wakes up and almost thinks she hears them calling to her. And, mm. and when Charles arrives, she calls him, you're a ghost, you're a demon. It's like she doesn't want him to exist in reality. He's kind of intruded on their, their new probably, reality. She would probably find him easier to deal with that way if he actually <laughs> right, were a ghost or right. a demon rather than a living, breathing human being. And do you remember that... that strange moment where she goes to her safe space in the garden this kind of dry spot among the branches of a tree and she in her mind's eye she she imagines the dining room table on the floor and she imagines each of her family members she sort of places them around the table and then sets them talking as they did on that mm. final evening almost like a Ouija board or, or like Shirley Jackson putting her own family around the table and sort of setting it going it's it's um I think there is a sense in which Mary Cat is sort of close to the world of ghosts. And at the very end of the novel, the house itself almost, it almost feels like Mary Cat and Constance are turning into these strange presences. But one of the villagers who walks past the house says that it 
looks like a tomb now. And when Charles pulls up and calls to them from inside, they don't speak, but all he hears is their kind of cackling laughter as he leaves. And there's, there's something very spooky about um, this kind of ruined house covered in ivy and these unseen presences inside. There is something spooky about that. And it's also, you know, the cackling laughter of children that is heard, that's audible in Hill House. Of course. Um, but, you know, thinking about Jackson arranging all her imaginary people around the table and all that, it makes it feel so appropriate somehow of what we've been doing today here. It feels like such an appropriate homage to her um, that uh, she's the ghost who's haunting us and we're here trying to (laughs) resuscitate her in the way that we can. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Ruth, the final question as we stand here today, it's been such a pleasure walking around North Bennington with you and, and discussing... Shirley Jackson. If you had to sum up what her legacy is today, how would you describe it? It's so hard to do that, you know, a neat little phrase, but, you know, the things that immediately come to my mind are the idea that, you know, the past is always with us in ways that we don't understand and, uh, you know, that our not understanding them is not protection against the ideas or the figures from the past being able to, to hurt us, um, but also the idea that women's lives are important, no matter what genre she's writing in. Women are always at the center of the narrative, that, that what goes on in the kitchen, what goes on in the bedrooms or in the playroom or in the garden is the stuff of fiction, whether it's horror or suspense or domestic memoir. That's what her literature is about. Well, what a perfect place to wrap things up. Ruth, thank you so much for taking us around North Bennington today. Thank you, Henry. My pleasure. Many thanks to Ruth Franklin, to Stuart Aldrich and Wendy June-Marie and the Moonscones Micro Bakery. Blackstone Audio for the clips of Bernadette Dunn reading from We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Penguin Audio for the clips of Francine Brody reading from The Lottery and Kate Hanford reading from Life Among the Savages and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott. The producers were Lucy Little and Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll leave you with this. Constance claims that she washed the family sugar bowl because there was a spider in it. In fact, of course, she was destroying incriminating evidence. On the last page of the Penguin Modern Classics edition of the novel, at the very bottom of the text, there is a little typeset image of a spider. Poor strangers, I said. They have so much to be afraid of. Well, Constance said, I am afraid of spiders. Jonas and I will see to it that no spider ever comes near you. Oh, Constance, I said, we are so happy.